what companies are doing is they're cutting costs, they're becoming efficient, they're spending on automation, they're spending on AI. So I think that we could be moving from an environment where earnings were driven by cost cutting and cheap financing to an environment where earnings are actually driven by productivity and efficiency. On WealthTrack, top-rated strategist Savita Subramanian on why investors abandoning stocks are making a mistake and this recession might be different. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuela Mack. I was taken by surprise recently by some comments from Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell after the Fed's recent decision to raise short-term interest rates for the 10th time in a little over a year. The quarter of a percentage point increase in the federal funds rate to a range of 5 to 5 and a quarter percent was not unexpected. But what was, to me at least, was his personal opinion that the toll in the economy after such an aggressive tightening cycle could be different than it has been in the past. As he put it in the press conference, I continue to think that it's possible that this time is really different. It's possible that we can continue to have a cooling in the labor market without having the big increases in unemployment that have gone with many prior episodes. Now that would be against history. He also said the case of avoiding a recession is, in my view, more likely than that of having a recession. Now, what also struck me was that I had heard similar opinions from this week's guest, a week before Powell's testimony. Now, when someone in finance says this time could be different, skepticism is usually warranted. But when Powell and Savita Subramanian say it, it deserves a hearing. Savita Subramanian is head of U.S. equity and quantitative strategy at B of A Global Research, where her responsibilities include U.S. sector allocation for equities, forecast for the S&P 500 and other major U.S. indices, quantitative equity strategy, and global ESG research. Subramanian has been named a star analyst by institutional investors for 10 years. She has also been named to Barron's list of 100 most influential women in U.S. finance for the past three years. I asked Subramanian why the Fed's impact in the economy could be different this time. One of the reasons that I think it's different this time is that we literally started at zero on the Fed funds rate. So I feel like we all forget that, you know, we've seen rates go up by 5%, and that sounds like a very high number, and it's been a very short period of time. But the reason is, you know, it's because rates were really depressed. We're coming off of all-time lows uh, on, on Fed funds rates. And I think that is a that's important to keep in mind to, to sort of quell our nervousness around the idea that rates have moved as quickly as they have and as much as they have. We had a lot of work to do, and I think the, the Fed has put, a, put us in a better place today because we are now at a point where short rates are now 5% rather than zero, which means that the Fed has more latitude in case things get really bad from here. I think the other thing that's different today, Consuelo, is that you know, we're, we're at a point where the consumer actually looks healthier than they have heading into prior 
recessionary environments. And if you think about it, it's thanks to fiscal stimulus, it's thanks to low interest rates. Um, but we've, we've seen consumers really, um, you know, lock in long dated mortgages, 90% of homeowners have fixed rate mortgages. So it's a different environment than what we were seeing in 2007, 2008, where in a way, we learned our lessons from the global financial crisis, and I think that uh, that the private sector is a lot healthier today than it has been in prior cycles. In a recent report, you said this is not your parents' economic slowdown, so what is it? I think where we are today is an environment where the risks may not reside where we think they do. So my sense is that we all think, okay, we're heading into an economic soft patch. You want to avoid buying cyclical stocks and you want to buy defensive companies like, um, you know, recurring revenue streams. You want to buy healthcare. You want to buy utilities. You want to buy companies that are, you know, kind of, um, less economically sensitive, and you really don't want to be in banks or energy or materials. Well, I think what's interesting right now is that we are at a point where commodities might actually be a little bit safer than we think they are and a little bit less economically sensitive. And financial companies, especially the financial companies that have been regulated by the government over the last 10 years since the, the prior crisis, um, large companies, large banks are actually looking a lot healthier from a balance sheet perspective. So I think this muscle memory that we have of, you know, sell banks, sell commodities in a recession might not play through exactly the same way. And then on the flip side, what I worry about is, you know, a lot of the companies that look like they've had very smooth and stable earnings growth tend to be multinational companies. And we have been in a 20 plus year period where globalization was frictionless. We could, you know, tax arbitrage, labor arbitrage, you could import goods from cheaper areas of the world. And there was very little risk around global supply chains. So multinational companies had this huge benefit from you know, cheaper and cheaper costs that were expanding margins, uh, more stable earnings from global diversification of different, different end markets. And today, it feels like that proposition is coming to a halt. So it feels like at this point, we are really rethinking global supply chains, not just from a, you know, kind of a, a COVID-related risk perspective, but also from a national security perspective. And what we're seeing companies do, companies are very adaptable. Corporate America is very mm -hmm. good at navigating a lot of uncertainty. And what they've already started to do is basically reshore or nearshore or friendshore, whatever you want to call it, but, but basically shift their supply chains to less risky parts of the globe, you know, potentially closer to consumers. What we're starting to realize is that the carbon emission costs, as well as just the political, geopolitical landscape, could create more costs than what companies were factoring in before. So that quality theme of multinationals, big global companies, I think is also being called into question. And then finally, when you think about the poster child for what's worked over the last 10 years, it's technology. We've been in a wonderful environment for technology companies, for growth companies. And I think part of that is because they are global and they've been able to take advantage of this, this uh, you know, open borders world that we've lived in. But then on top of that, we've had an environment where the cost of capital
capital has essentially fallen to the lowest levels we've ever seen. So companies that needed to borrow to grow their businesses, like growthier companies, like technology, like um, internet, uh, you know, a lot of these nascent themes have had free capital. And that has been fantastic in terms of funding all of the ideas out there. But today, having gone from zero to 5% on cash yields, it's gonna be a very different setup for growth stocks. What is priced into the market right now? What are the expectations as far as what the Fed is going to do, for instance? And, uh, and what are your views at B of A Global Research? The market expectation is that the Fed will pause and potentially cut rates later in the year. And right. I think that our view from Bank of America, and you know, I listen to our economists, and, and they're very, they've been very ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, last year they were actually expecting the Fed to be more aggressive, and the Fed was aggressive. And today, I think where we are is a point where, you know, it's not a slam dunk that we're going to see a rate cut in the next six months. And I think the problem is that a lot of the sources of wage inflation, um, commodity price inflation are stickier than investors are expecting. So part of the reason labor markets are tight is that there is a big chunk of folks that just stepped away from working. The second reason for tight labor markets is, you know, the idea that if companies are reshoring or nearshoring and moving plant and property and equipment back to the U.S., we're likely to see the labor market remain tight for the foreseeable future. And then on top of that, when you look at commodities, um, you know, granted, we've seen a lot of volatility in oil prices over the last year or two, and oil prices have come down from high levels. But one could argue that there is more upward risk to oil and metals than downward pressure today, just given that commodity companies have really switched from producing at the hint of inflation to being very disciplined about supply and being more focused on preserving dividends and cash return policy. So supply constraints have actually been implemented in, um, in commodity companies in the United States very religiously across the board. We're seeing a very, still a very low supply of oil given the demand and the price increases. We're still seeing metals and mining companies um, producing less. And, and when you think about all the metals that we need to get to net zero or decarbonization right. goals, all the batteries that we need to put in these electric vehicles, it's 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 easy to argue for you know massive demand shock for commodities from here. So I think that those are some of the areas where we could see um, relatively sticky inflation that doesn't come down as quickly as we're all expecting. When it comes to the Fed pausing, you know, who knows what happens next? And I think we're all in wait and see mode. But I they don't know what's going to happen. Next. They don't I mean, they're know. Saying they're totally exactly. you know data dependent meeting to meeting. Exactly. Now, our economists are actually calling for what I would call a, a, a less dire recession than what we typically see. So, so if you listen to our U.S. economists, they are, they're forecasting a peak to trough decline in U.S. GDP of about, you know, a little less than a percentage point. So 0.8% peak to trough GDP decline. Mm -hmm. And that is actually not so bad. I mean, if you think about the typical recession, you see a 2% decline on average. 
This is less than half of the typical depth of a recession. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily as problematic from an economic perspective as what we've seen in prior crises. We've been talking about a recession since, you know, the beginning of last year. And right, when happened, the Fed started when, uh, tightening. Exactly. When the Fed started tightening, it was like, whoa, watch out, we're going to see a recession. You know, Fed tightening cycles always end in a recession. And we've been sort of priming our portfolios for this recession for, you know, a year and a half now. And I think what's interesting is that when you look at the average institutional investor or individual investor portfolio, it is very, very defensive. As a matter of fact, one of the things that, that you said, based again on your institutional investor surveys, is that they hate stocks. I mean, <laughs> um, and so the, the, the portion of institutional portfolios, and this is globally too, right? Yes. That are in, in stocks uh, is the lowest is the, that it's been since the global financial crisis. Exactly, right. lower than COVID, um, same levels as the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Stock hatred and bond love has gone back to those 2008 levels of, you know, hiding under the desk. And and I think it's interesting because we're we're actually in, you know, in an environment that doesn't feel as bad as would warrant this level of defensive positioning. One of the big changes, the risks that are unanticipated that that always occur when when you do have like a, a kind of a credit crunch that we've got now. Um, is that who knew that, you know, that depositors would just pick up their iPhones and press a button and they would, you know, withdraw $100 billion from Silicon Valley Bank and understand uh, the portfolio managers who are saying there are a lot of risks, they're just starting to emerge, we don't know where they're yeah. coming from, so therefore that that's not an unreasonable position, but you think it's a um, mistaken one, is that right? It's important to always be cautious and know what you don't know about what's happening right now. And the truth right. is, we don't know what pockets of the economy have flourished from just a, you know, a really low cost of capital. So the idea is, you know, when we're moving from zero to five on short rates, something's got to break and we are starting yes. to see things breaking. The, the idea of moving from equities straight into bonds and long duration bonds, to me, is potentially riskier than um, than sticking with cash and high quality stocks. And when I look at the 10 year treasury or the, the so-called risk free rate, think about who's been buying treasuries for the last 10 years. The Fed has been the biggest buyer of treasuries. Central banks across the globe have been buying uh, treasuries. Right. Quantitative easing. Exactly. Quantitative mm -hmm. easing has been, you know, the the source of demand for bonds over the last 10 years. And then right. prior to that, we had China buying U.S. treasuries. And I think that both of those sources of demand look at risk today. And then the second reason is that, you know, again, we've just exited a period of very, very low interest rates. I think that, you know, rate cycles are sticky. They can last for a very long period of time. So the idea that you want to buy bonds and that, that the 10-year yield is going to go down from here, I don't know if that's a slam dunk either. I also think that, you know, the risks in, in, the, in the overall market are not necessarily in the typical channels. Because if you think about credit contraction from here, 
the lenders over the last 10 years haven't necessarily been the typical lenders that we think about. So normally when you think about credit creation, it's from banks. But right. over the last 10 years, banks haven't le lent as much and they haven't, you know, they've been uh, much more constrained in terms of who they're going to lend to. And the lending facilities have really shifted to private equity, venture capital, um, you know, funding through what, what I would call more of a shadow banking system right. that is harder mm -hmm. to suss out in times of crisis. Banks are regulated, but there's this whole other source of financing that is not. We have no idea what their situation is. And it's enormous. And it, it's just this black hole. Um, and, you know, we're just going to find out kind of on a company by company basis of what right. their financial situations are. Right. When you look at all of these cross currents, as, as you've described them as well, uh, what do we do as investors? we need to really rethink what's defensive and what's risky. And it's just, it's as simple as thinking about, you know, when you, when you think about consumer spending, usually luxury goods are defensive and discount or, or, you know, kind of mid or lower price point retailers are more uh, volatile in terms of demand. And the idea here is that, you know, wealthier consumers aren't as impacted by cyclical downturns. But then when we step back and look at where the weaknesses in the job market are really taking place, it's, you know, it's Silicon Valley, it's Wall Street, it's not necessarily middle America. So even that is different from prior crises. When I think about commodities versus, you know, cyclicals versus defensives and, um, you know, you think about healthcare companies that have been actually extending their leverage ratios over the last 10 years um, versus, you know, industrials and energy companies that have been paying down debt. It's public sector debt versus private sector debt that worries me. And then you have this other cross current of companies moving back to the U.S. and creating jobs in manufacturing, which is a sector that's been starved of capital for a very long time. So I think this is all bullish and bearish. Do we rethink the idea of credit contractions and how they actually impact America? Um, mm -hmm. I think the other important thing to remember is that over the last 10 years, we've been in an environment where corporate spending has been very one directional. We've seen spending on share buybacks. We've seen spending on- Dividends. You know, Dividends, share buybacks, tech capex has been very strong, but traditional capex on structures and equipment has been very muted. So, you know, if, if companies are now cutting costs, you're not necessarily going to see those costs being hitting manufacturing complexes because they weren't spending there anyway. You're going to see those costs hitting technology. You're going to see less buybacks, less cash return. And I think that's what we need to focus on as the risks around a credit contraction to begin with. I mean, I think what's interesting is if you look at every dollar that has been borrowed or generated by a corporate in the United States, today, half of that, 50 cents of that dollar is going towards cash return through buybacks or dividends versus a much smaller percentage in you know, 2007, 2008. And only 20 cents of that is going towards traditional CapEx versus a much higher right. percentage. Capital expenditures. Exactly. Right, which is actually not great longer term for either the companies or the economy if they're not spending on 
right, new plants and new equipment and... I think the good news is, and I want to talk about the bull case for America, and I, I think that, you know, corporate America is very smart, and companies have been very nimble about managing their margins. So when I look at earnings, uh, you know, I'm actually very positively surprised by how stable margins have been over the last year or two, despite the flat fact that we've been in the highest inflationary environment that we've ever seen. And mm -hmm. what companies are doing is they're cutting costs, they're becoming efficient, they're spending on automation, they're spending on AI. So I think that we could be moving from an environment where earnings were driven by cost cutting and cheap financing to an environment where earnings are actually driven by productivity and efficiency and you know, better, more sticky sources of earnings growth than, than what we've enjoyed over the, over the past. You're, you're actually looking at companies that, uh, that did not benefit from the kind of the, the easy credit and easy cash, the free capital, and that you're looking at companies that have had to kind of slog through and that are used to having capital constraints. And just can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're exiting a period where earnings growth for company for some companies has been really easy because financing has been free and we've been in a you know, in a in a in a global global world, um, but then there are other sectors that have been rationalizing capacity over the last ten years, and I would cite companies like, um, you know, uh, home builders or mm -hmm. um, you know, single family construction has basically uh, decelerated for a very long time. Um, if you look at companies like commodities, we've seen commodity companies being starved of capital allocation either from you know, just uh, climate risk and decarbonization risks. Um, we've seen commodity companies basically rationalize capacity. Uh, so there are a lot of companies that have actually taken the last 10 years to pay down debt, consolidate capacity, focus on cash return, and basically morph into some of the higher quality areas in the market. And I guess if I were to think about a simple way to try to capture this, it would be you know, at the end of every cycle, you really want to buy the companies that have been deprived of capital because that's where you're going to see your highest returns. And you want to sell the companies that have been extended free capital because those companies have maybe gotten a little bit complacent around how to actually generate returns. I know you don't recommend individual stocks, but therefore look at energy companies, for instance, industrial companies. Energy, industrial, automation companies. I think mm -hmm. within technology, we're seeing a real, you know, kind of a nascent theme of artificial intelligence, which I think could be, you know, another bullish story, another bullish long-tailed theme. Um, I would look for companies that are labor-intensive today, but have the potential to become labor-light through automation and AI. I mean, I think there's a lot of improvements and efficiencies that we can see going forward from some of the companies that just don't necessarily look all that great today. Savita, the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio when, when you were on a year ago, and again, this is long-term diversified, it's, it's more than a year, but, but you had had us look at small cap value, which had been very much undervalued for a long time. What, what would it be today? I might double down on small cap value, even though it hasn't worked as well as I would have hoped. Your energy call was a was a really great call last year. I, I think energy is is a theme that still has legs. I like metals and mining, and I think that the the sort of the idea of 
you know, the, the, the raw materials that go into batteries. I mean, that's going to be a very big theme going forward. So your, your one investment, if you had to choose like one sector, what would it be? I would be long commodities. And I'm going to stick with sort of energy, but broaden it out to commodities like metals, uh, oil, just basically the idea that we've seen a complete starvation of capital in those areas of the market. And I believe we are moving into an environment where real assets might outperform financial assets. And, and I think the commodities mm -hmm. have been forgotten as an asset class because they shrank to such a small proportion of the benchmark. Um, I think that, that that area of the market could right size over time. All right, we'll leave it there. And that is definitely a contrarian recommendation, um, which is not unusual coming from you. So, Sabita Subramanian, thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track. Thank you. Thanks, Consuelo. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is avoid panic selling. Research provided by B of A Global Research shows that since the 1930s, the best stock performance frequently follows the worst when investors are most likely to sell. It turns out that the best 10 days of returns in each decade were preceded by deep declines in the prior three months, an average of negative 11 percent. In every decade except the 1930s, the pattern held. Declining markets preceded the most outstanding returns. The moral to this story is selling into a declining market is a poor strategy for investment success. Next week, our annual sit-down with David Rosenberg. What does the outspoken, data-rich, and frequently contrarian economist have to say about the economy and markets now? We'll find out. In this week's extra feature, Savita Subramanian shares her techniques for keeping cool in chaotic markets. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Have a wonderful Mother's Day weekend, and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable and productive one.